This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks very much for spending part of your day with us. Are there times of the day when you know that you feel better? Are there times where you feel that you're more productive in the office? There has been a a variety of research to look at this idea, and now there is a book that addresses it as well, addressing the fact that it isn't just what you do in the day, but sometimes when you do it. Longtime uh, bestselling author Daniel Pink takes uh, a run at the topic in a new book that he has brought out. It is titled When... The Scientific Secrets to Perfect Timing. And it's a pleasure to have Daniel in the studio here with us. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. So I guess explain how this idea became so important to you. Well, I realized that I was making all kinds of when decisions in my own life, things like when in the day should I work out. Um, But not only over the course of a day, when should I abandon a project that's not working? When should I consider steering my career in a different direction? And I realized I was making those decisions in a totally haphazard way, wanted to make them in a more systematic way, started looking at the research and realized there is a mountain of research out there on this question of when we should do things across dozens and dozens of of, of fields, some of it done right here at the University of Pennsylvania. And and I find it interesting that you have – and you talk about how vast this yeah. idea is. You give a variety of different examples. I would imagine in the course of doing the research for this, there were a couple of them that really stood out to you as as more unique than, than probably some of the other ones. Oh, yeah. This, this book, more than any other book that I've written, has changed how I lead my own life. I right. mean, for instance, you know what the, what the research shows pretty clearly is that we move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a rebound peak, a trough, a rebound. Most of us move through it in that order. People who are night owls go in the reverse order. But what it shows pretty clearly is that during the peak, which for most of us, we have a rise in mood, rise in our vigilance, better off doing our analytic work then. For most of us, it's the morning, right around the time of your show. Um, We should be doing our heads down, focused, locked in work. The trough, which is usually the early to mid-afternoon, not good for very much. All kinds of (laughs) terrible things happen. In fact, uh, you know, there's research out of the University of Pennsylvania showing that uh, hand-washing in hospitals deteriorates considerably in the afternoon. There's other research showing that anesthesia errors four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m., Doctors more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics. Kids' test scores go down when they take him the test in the afternoon. So that afternoon trough, not ideal. Uh, then we have the recovery, which is usually the late afternoon and early evening. That's an interesting period because our mood goes back up, but we're less locked down and vigilant. And that combo makes it pretty effective for things like brainstorming, yeah. and doing kind of creative work. And so what I've done myself is, even in writing this book, is tr- try to put the right work at the right time, based not on guesses, not on folklore, but on this rich body of science that tells us when to do things. And obviously the big data kind of revolution that we're in right now kind of plays into this as well. Oh, the big, the big, the big data revolution has been huge in unlocking some of these insights. I mean, one of the things that um, this, this idea of a pattern of mood over the course of a day, yeah. one of the big studies of that is a study, as a big data study out of Cornell of 
where you can take there's – there's something called the LIWC, the Linguistic Inventory Word Count. It's a program. And what you can do is you can put text in there, yeah. and the text will measure the emotional content of words. So if, if I say – you know, if the text is happy, they know it's positive. If it's right. sad, sad, negative. And so what these researchers did is they took 500 million tweets. Oh, God. Okay. Half a billion tweets. Yeah. Put them into this program and said – and measured the emotional level of the words based on time of day. And what they found was exactly what I said. A peak in mood in the morning, a crash, trough in the early to mid-afternoon, and then a recovery for the rest of the day. But big data is giving us huge amounts of insights into questions of timing. Huge. So unofficially, you've told us it's a good thing that we do this show from 10 a.m. to noon and not necessarily 2 to 4 in the afternoon when when people are in that kind of that crash mode. Or you might be in that crash mode even worse. I, I will say this from the personal perspective, and I was thinking about this when I was going through your book. I am somebody, in terms of doing this show, we do it live 10 a.m. to noon every day. I am normally up at 4 a.m. Uh-huh. And for two reasons. One, I, I feel like at 4 a.m., getting going, that's that's a good time for me to get hmm. going. Part of it is also being a divorced dad. It allows me to have at 4 a.m. to 6.15, 6.30, that two and a half hours to really dig into my day. Right. Before my kids get up, right. which a lot of people have to have to deal with. That, Absolutely. That, those different factors that really play, whether it be professionally or personally, that they that play a role in their in their up and down modes. But not everybody can do what you do getting up at four. I mean, there, we have different what are called chronotypes, which is our basically our propensity to wake up early, go to sleep early, wake yeah. up late, go to go to sleep late. And some of us, you sound like you're very much of a lark, a kind of a more of a morning person than an evening person. I am now. I used to be the other way around. Well, and that happens with age. Not that you're, yeah. not, you're, a, young, you're a young guy, but yeah. that happens with age. You'll see. How old are your kids? Uh, my kids are 11 and 8-year-old twins. Okay, so here's what's going to happen, if, unless you don't know this already, Dan. We'll just wait four years when your kids, kids between the ages of about 14 and 24, have this massive shift toward greater and greater owliness. They yeah. become much oh, yeah. later chronotypes. <laughs> Um, and that, that period that period between 14 and 24, people are extremely owly in general. Uh, and then they begin to go back to more morning – in general, not everybody, in general go back to more morningness. But how much of a fluctuation can there be with people? So just like with me, I mean, I, I before I – I got into into business radio. I worked in professional sports, and and I was when you're working in professional sports, you're, you're working late. you're working later hours to begin with. Yeah. So how much fluctuation? There's probably not a ton of it because from a career perspective, a lot of times people are in the same kind of general genre, you know, nine to five, seven to five, whatever it might be. Right. There's not as huge a fluctuation, but probably a decent amount of examples of it, that. You know, it, it really it really depends. I mean, we can we can sort of do a back of the envelope test right now with you. Yeah. So, like on a day where you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock, I'm still what, up by about what, what time six, do you go to, six fifteen? What time do you go to sleep on a day you don't have to wake up to an alarm? Clock? Usually between like ten and eleven. Okay, and then what time do you usually wake up? Six fifteen. Okay, so what we so the, there's an easy way to figure this out, which is the you figure out the the midpoint of sleep. Yeah. All right. And the midpoint of sleep for you is is two is two a.m. Right. You're a lark. All right. That's that puts you in pretty serious. No matter lark. what, yeah. that puts you in pretty serious lark territory. So yeah. maybe this job is actually more in tune with your type. The other one was not. And this is actually a big issue because what you have is you have people who the people who are owls. Yeah. The the contemporary workforce is completely tilted against them. 
they have to people have to they start early in the morning yeah. people go home around 6 and so smart companies are actually refashioning the workplace to allow people to work according to their chronotype. So if you right. want to if you're a coder and you want to and you do your best analytic work starting at 4 and you want to do your heads down analytic work from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., God bless you. You should yeah. be able to do that. Are are companies aware of kind of that down period. I think most managers are, that there is a quote-unquote down period in time. Not that they're willing to accept it, yeah. but they but they probably know that there is a... And I understand if companies kind of... Do they understand this and, and are they... Do they do they work with it? Do they understand that, you know, if, if majority of, of strong, solid mindset work is done in the mornings, that there will be maybe a period of... 30 minutes, 45 minutes, where that person may not be on top of their game. I don't think they fully factored it in. I, yeah. And I think, that's a big, I think that's a big, big challenge. I think you're onto something really important there. But basically, the point here is that if you look at and – and I don't want to disrespect companies. I think it's true of all of us at the individual level, the, the organizational level. We are very intentional about what we do. Many of your listeners have a to-do list today, right? Yeah. We're very intentional about what we do. We're intentional about how we do it. Yeah. We're intentional about who we do it with. Companies have human resources departments. Yeah. But we take this question of when we do stuff and say, ah, it's not that important. Let's, yeah. uh, well, let's sit it over there at the kids' table. But it belongs at the grown-ups' table. And even for, even for a dimension like time of day, time of day explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on tasks at work. So timing isn't everything, right. but it's a big thing. Uh, we're talking with Daniel Pink, who is the author of the book, A When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. You're more than welcome to join in with your comments or questions at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show through that manner, at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the interesting things you put in the book, I, I because we are a business show, uh, you mentioned the fact that companies that do earnings calls oh. in the afternoon more times than not are bringing forth negative information in comparison to a company that does an earnings call in the morning where it's more likely to go the other way with the positive. Thank you for mentioning this because I think this is just a remarkable piece of research. It was done at NYU, and once again, it draws on big data. It's the same kind of method that was used in the Twitter study that I told you. Public companies do earnings calls, as you yep. and all your listeners know, yep. obviously. Every quarter. Because they're every single quarter. Because they're public companies, the transcripts themselves are public. All right. So, so these researchers at NYU took 26,000 transcripts from earnings calls, tossed them into this program to measure the emotional content. And what they found is that calls in the afternoon were more negative and irritable than calls in the morning. And here's the kicker. Even if you controlled for the fundamentals of what they're reporting. So you're going to be irritable and negative if your company's major factory in Malaysia blew up. Yeah. You're going to be irritable if, you're, if, you're, if your earnings are down. Control for all of that. Take that out of the equation. No matter what the earnings reported, calls in the afternoon were more negative and irritable to the point where it had a short-term effect on the stock price. And so, and so these researchers who are not, you know, who are just looking for, you know, hidden truths about how we live and, and, and work very rarely give prescriptive advice, say in this paper, hey, you probably shouldn't have your earnings calls right, in the right, afternoon. Right. Well, I, I find it interesting because, I, I, you know, the, the journalistic 
uh, concern around doing stuff late in the afternoon is always, well, you know, you're doing, you're sending that information out, that PR release, whatever it might be, late in the afternoon because you're trying to kind of duck it under the yeah, radar. Yeah. I guess to a degree, it, it, it follows that same same type of philosophy. You 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 might you might be able to do that, but you know, I, I would say if you're an executive and you're and you're someone is going to figure out if they haven't done it already and we don't know about it. Yeah. Wait, there's a there's a mismatch between the the, the true price of a stock and its price as it's affected by the negative sentiment of afternoon earnings calls. And in that little delta, there's a lot of money to be made if, it, if someone's not making it already. I, I guess it's also interesting the fact that, uh, and we mentioned this on a different aspect earlier in the show, is the fact that more companies right now want teams to work together in their operations. Uh, it's not as much necessarily on one person doing a project anymore. So I would imagine that from a timing perspective, that also plays in to whether or not you, you have these companies working on these projects in a particular time of the day comparison to another one. Sure. Um, and, and, and that's a, a huge issue, especially when things are going across time zones. That's a very yeah. hard, it's a very, yeah. very hard uh, problem to solve. Uh, you also see, you know, what do you do if you have people, if you have some larks in your office and some owls in your office, yeah. when do you schedule When do you schedule certain kinds of meetings? It ends up being, and, and then there's a whole uh, line of research about how do teams synchronize in time with each other. So yeah. what can we learn from choirs who are syn- well synchronized? What can we learn from rowing teams uh, about how this to synchronize that, with This others? is that group timing that you, Absolutely. That you talk about in the book. Right. Which uh, and you also talk a little bit about uh, some research, I guess, that the NBA had done regarding uh, regarding their players as well. Correct? Oh well, yeah. So so one of the interesting things about group time, group timing is a really interesting issue, um, and one of the things that you see about it is that for groups to really synchronize in time, they desperately need a sense of belonging. Right. All right. They need to feel sort of and I call it sinking to the tribe. They need to feel a sense of belonging, and and belongingness is fostered by sometimes a common language common lingo, yeah. but it's also fostered by touch. And there's a lovely piece of research on, on NBA where they took uh, – on the NBA where they took people who didn't know what the, what the researchers were looking for. Right. They had them watch a few games early in the season and count – and they have a glorious list in this paper of <laughs> chest bumps, fist bumps, high fives, low fives, all the time they touch. And it turned out that, that how often a team touched was a predictor of how well the team was going to do. Because that's something that fosters belonging. Which is interesting. Because, or at least evidence is belonging. Because if you watch an NBA game now, every time a player takes a free throw, after the free throw, you see players intentionally give a fist bump or something like that. It used to never be that way. Right, right. And some old old school basketball fans don't like that. Yeah. Especially if giving a, a fist bump for a miss, a missed free throw. Well, in terms of taking a break during the day, what what is the science behind the break in terms of the impact on the up and down flow of oh, a person's day, yeah, breaks, uh, breaks. The science of breaks, to my mind, is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. That 15 years ago, we weren't fully aware of how important sleep was. We thought people who pulled all nighters were heroes. Now we know people who pull all nighters are fools. We don't want them around. They're gonna, they're gonna deteriorate our performance. Uh, what the science of breaks is showing is we should be taking more breaks, and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And breaks end up being a very strong antidote to that dip. You see it, and I mentioned those, uh, that study of hospitals and hand-washing. Giving yeah. nurses a social break gets the hand-washing back up. There are sure. kids who, whose standardized test scores are lower in the afternoon. 
give them a 20 to 30 minute break to run around before they take the test, their scores go back up. And, and it's not just, and when you think about those two examples right now, when you think about somebody that works in the medical profession, chances are they are in a higher tension type of industry to begin with compared to a kid that may be taking a test. But there's different levels of tension, different you know impacts that, that the tension has leading to the breaks. But the same general principles apply, whether you're a little kid taking a test or whether you're a nurse washing his or her hands. Yeah. Um, and what, what we know about breaks is that uh, social breaks are better than solo breaks, so you're better off taking a break with somebody else. Yeah. Uh, we know that you want to be fully detached, not semi-detached, so leave your phone away. Uh, some remarkable research on the importance of, I think it's less remarkable, the importance of movement, so get up and move rather than sit around, but also the importance of nature. So simply being in nature, being outside, even seeing trees, seeing greenery can be very replenishing. Well, let me ask you, since you mentioned smartphones and being detached, yeah. and, and obviously we have this connectivity even more so now every day. How how does this thing that I sit with at my desk right now uh, here in the studio, how does this thing play a negative role on our culture in terms of in terms of the office, because that's that's got to be an impact when you have somebody trying to do a project, yet they may be worried about getting a text message or a call from their kid's school about being sick or yeah. something that yeah. that may be happening. I mean, I, I think what we have to do is we have to program in times where we are detached. It doesn't. I'm not talking about hours. Yeah. I mean, what I do is in the afternoon, I make a I, in the morning, I make a break list. So I write down two breaks I'm going to take during the afternoon. They're usually ten minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah. And and so I'll go, I'll, I'll use it to take a walk, I'll leave my phone on my desk and won't take it with me. Most of us can survive, and certainly our organizations will survive if we're not at our phones for a 10-minute segment at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Do you, do you put taking the lunch a- as one of those breaks? Yeah, there's actually some really good research on lunch. Um, lunch ends up being a very powerful uh, restorative, um, in part because it can be social, and that ends up being very replenishing. Um, in part simply that, you know, just having a proper lunch, the nutrition is, is actually valuable there. It's arguable that lunch is a more important meal than uh, breakfast for productivity. Uh, in the book, you've done uh, as well, and the book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. People that buy this book, there are also little kind of guides for people to, to kind of gauge where they are in, in this as well. Correct? Oh, sure, sure, sure. There's um, so there's all there's some t- techniques for how do you measure your own chronotype. But actually, the book is it, it's a book about science. But at the end of every chapter, I have what what's called the Time Hacker's Handbook, and yeah. so uh, th- those say, okay, here's the science of the pattern of the day. Now, in the handbook, here's what you can do about it. Here's the science of breaks. Now, here's what you can do about it. Here's how midpoints affect our behavior. Now, yeah. Time Hacker's Handbook, here's, how, here's what you can do about it. I, I read that you had worked in the past with Vice President Al Gore. I did. What, in that environment, which obviously is probably something different than most yeah. environments, you know, were you able to kind of, looking back on it now and writing this book, understand the breaks and and the up and down flow that you had you know working in that job it was basically the opposite of what uh, though i write about in this book uh because you're basically heads down locked in 24 going forward all the time i was a yeah. spe- i was a speech writer i was a chief speech writer for for vice president gore for several years in the few years in the mid 1990s and so you think about speech writing and it's like oh you know this sort of as if we're like w- sitting around in smoking jackets and thinking great thoughts when in fact it's basically it's like being in a um um uh, an uh, inner city philadelphia emergency room where you're just stitching up bodies and hope they don't die on your watch 
that's what the work that's what the work is like <laughs> would you it sounds like you may not ever want to do that again well i didn't i left i left it you know over i left it what 20 years ago or so yeah. i mean it's exhilarating at the time especially yeah. when you're young and you feel like you're doing something valuable uh as a sustained uh, path in life it's it's probably not good for your heart or your soul does does the upswing towards the end of the day does, is it really driven by, in many cases, the fact that people are either leaving work or they have left work or they're at home and they've kind of decompressed a little bit? That's part of it. That's part of it. Although uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, the Nobelist, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he led some research on the also on the daily pattern of the day. And what they found, he and his team found, is that the single lowest moment in our, in our day, the, the moment that the activity that makes us least happy in the course of a day is commuting. So it's also a period when we do, you know, some of us do commuting. I, in my commute uh, daily, because I take the, the transportation here in Philadelphia, I find that, and maybe I'm not the norm, I find that another period of time where I can really focus and, and get work done. Right. Compared to, you know, just sitting there and twiddling and looking at, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's going on on the ESPN app or, you know, take your, take your pick. But I, I guess it's it's different for I mean th- there are similarities in a lot of this, but there are differences, nuances to every person. Absolutely, in this. we're talking about we're talking about broad patterns of behavior among millions and millions of people. Yeah, and so you know so this is so you know most of us I said go through peak trough recovery. You know your peak might be start earlier than my peak. Your trough might last shorter or longer than mine. Your recovery might be more robust. It might begin earlier. But the general patterns remain remarkably consistent. You briefly touched on before, but to bring it back in the last couple of minutes, the fact that the the impact of this on students and whether they be students at the high school level yeah. in comparison to students at the college level yeah. here at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, there's some there's some real there's a lot of really good stuff on 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 an education. Uh, I mentioned that um, standardized test scores tend to go down in the afternoon yeah. for elementary school kids. Uh, same thing is true again. You, you, I mean, you nailed it at the beginning with big data. There's a great piece of research out of the LA Unified School District showing that kids who take math in the morning do better than kids who take it in the afternoon. Huh. The one, one of the big things, though, for teenagers is school start times. Um, school starts too early for teenagers. Their chronotypes are such that they wake up later, yeah. go to sleep later. The American Academy of Pediatrics issued a policy statement a couple of years ago saying, please, schools of America, do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. This is all the pediatricians in America linking arms, yeah. pleading with schools, and yet the average school start time in America for teenagers like is 8.03. Yeah. Uh, great having you here. It's fantastic. Dan, thanks for thanks a lot. Thanks for having time, me. Time flies by when you're having fun. Timing is everything and time flies. Absolutely. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.